It's time for another hour of community-based programming. You're listening to 89.3 KEYK, Osage Beach, Missouri, The Key. The following is a Thunderbolt West Media production. This is a Living Off-Grid Power and Information Show update. These updates can be heard on 89.3 Key Radio, Osage Beach, Missouri, as well as being posted on my website, which is livingoffgridshow.wixsite.com forward slash LOG show. I'm your host, Jim Calhoun, and thanks for listening. And I'd like to tell everybody, thank you for Supporting my show, The Living Off-Grid Power and Information Show, I really appreciate it. Now what I'd like to tell you today is that I think it's time for everyone to start buddying up. What I mean by that is start finding your true friends, the people that will be there for you, come thick or thin. Now I think we've gone past the time of trying to wake people up or trying to convince them of some impending doom that I think is coming. I sure hope not. But I think it's time for all of us to start really focusing on our family and friends that we can count on. And if we find ourselves in a worldwide event that's very unpleasant, you may need to reach out for help. And you want to make sure that you reach out to the right people. And I think that my analogy is like changing a tire the day before the storm. If you know that you have to use the car later on in the week, don't wait until the stormy day to change the tire. Change the tire the day before when it's still nice out. Now, I'm using that analogy to explain that right now you need to talk with people and find out if you can count on them. And... Don't just accept lip service of, okay, yeah, no. Really talk to them. Come up with plans. Formulate. Strategize. I think that it's really time for neighborhoods to come together. I really think it's time for everyone to get their headspace right. Then you need to get your family taken care of as far as get everyone on the same page as much as possible. And after you get that done, Reach out to your neighbors. Reach out to your friends and your communities. And really support your small town local businesses. Now more than ever. Because if things really get as bad as what I think is going to happen, we're going to see lots of people go out of business. And the last people you want to see out of business are your local friends and neighbors that run their businesses. Because it's them that's going to bring your community back. It's them that might be your salvation. And so everyone support your small town stores. Please do that. The big box stores don't care anything about you. Support your small stores. Talk to your family. Talk to your friends. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to anyone that you think is important for your safety and your survival. And tell people. Openly tell them. If you love them, tell them you love them and tell them you'll support them and tell them how you'll support them. 
it's important that we get this information out to each other before the storm because the worst time to plan anything is during the middle of chaos and so plan things now talk to people now we can't count on the federal government or state government and possibly even local government to come to our aid if we really do have some problems coming down the pike and I also want to tell everybody I do have a newsletter I'm starting to put out and if you'd like to get my newsletter all you have to do is send me an email and that's Jim at offgridliving.faith so just get a hold of me and I'll put you on my list thanks for listening Thank you for listening to Thunderbolt West Media. We're introducing something new on Key Radio called Ozark's Voices. Express yourself anytime on the air without commitments or radio skills. Just email billm at orioncenter.org and I'll contact you about recording anything from five minutes to a half hour. We can record by phone or in my office or you can record it and send it to me. It can be a monologue or a conversation, whatever works best for you. Then I'll produce it as part of an Ozarks Voices show on Key Radio. Any topic is fine. Hobbies, comments about lake happenings, conspiracy theories, or say hi to Grandma. I'll make sure you sound great. Send a message to billm at orioncenter.org. That's B-I-L-L-M at O-R-I-O-N-C-E-N-T-E-R dot org and be a part of Ozark's Voices. Part of the solution. Join the lake's only community radio station, 89.3, The Key.
Hey, good morning. It is 808. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on this day after Christmas. And man, I hope you had a great Christmas. Fortunately, it falls on Sunday, so many of us have to be back at work today doing our thing. But I'll tell you what, folks, I really don't mind considering the fact that we're going to have a great guest to spend some time with this morning and just uh, talk about life and what he's been doing. And, of course, uh, a lot of you know him from around the Lake of the Ozarks. Dorsey Schrader is going to join us here in just a couple of minutes. 34 degrees now in Osage Beach, 32 in Camdenton, and 35 is the uh, expected afternoon high. And then temps are going to do a bit of a nosedive as winds hit us out of the northwest at about 10 to 15 miles per hour. We'll uh, drop down near 20 degrees throughout the course of the day. Partly cloudy, a low tonight of around 11. And then sunny and 39. We'll start to uh, make our way back up. How about uh, sunny and 52 on Wednesday? Cloudy and 63 on Thursday. Love that Missouri weather. Morning showers on Friday and 49. Cloudy next Saturday for the final day of 2022. And then to begin the new year, partly cloudy and a high of 52. And then we've got some nice weather, much nicer than what we have endured up to uh, and through uh, about midweek on of last week with the uh, snow. But more importantly, the cold temperatures, and I hope you got through that uh, rather well. Uh, we were without uh, electric uh, for probably, uh, oh, four or five hours and then it uh, came back on, and hats off to the men and women that get out there and do that job. We were without water for a while, but uh, we eventually got that back on Saturday. So no harm, no foul, but I think most of us, uh, from what I've seen on social media, a lot of folks have just really uh, enjoyed the holiday and hopefully had time to spend with their families and friends and uh, just doing what they were doing. Uh, again, a big thanks to all of the organizers of the temporary shelter at the Community Christian Church. They opened that on Thursday and closed it up yesterday around noon, and they had some folks come through that uh, needed a place to hang out because they uh, didn't have uh, the proper facilities, whether it was uh, electric, whether it was heat, whether it was water, and to... Uh, uh, Pastor Brown over there and uh, Sam Henley and all of the folks, Casey Cloak, and so many people that uh, answered the call to uh, bring in some uh, much-needed uh, supplies, food, water, things along those lines. Uh, some folks took the time to prepare uh, sandwiches and lunches for folks if they needed them when they stopped by. And all of the volunteers, thank you so very much for uh, spending some time during your holiday to uh, man the uh, the temporary shelter over there. Again, Community Christian Church on North Business 5 in Camdenton. And so now we know that this area, like everything else we do around here, has uh, capable, competent people that are willing to step up. And uh, a lot of folks uh, as well helping to organize this event and it went off without a hitch. So uh, thanks to all the folks who took the time. We are uh, very fortunate, and I must say, you got to be careful sometimes when you call into this program because you could very well find yourself behind a microphone, much like our guest this morning, the one and only, as uh, Sean Cobra referred to him, uh, the modern-day rock star, Dorsey Schrader, who uh, is in the studio with us. If you're watching on the SRG Financial Advisors Key Radio uh, in-studio live cam, you can see uh, Dorsey sitting here with me along with Lightning the Wonder Dog this morning. We're all manning the mics and uh, ready to hear some interesting stories about uh, uh, a gentleman 
who a lot of us know from around the Lake of the Ozarks. He's known not only locally and throughout the country, but worldwide as, of course, uh, his days as a race car driver, a restaurateur, a broadcaster, <laughs> and uh, he's uh, been doing a little bit of everything these days, and it's great to have him with us. Good to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming in. Hey, man, you too. Um, it was funny because I just got back up from uh, from Florida when I gave you a call, saw you on the, on the Internet, and right. uh, called you up and, and just want to say hi and see how you're doing. And, and then, uh, so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how it works. That's how we roll. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of different things that we can talk about. But first and foremost, let's kind of talk about uh, what you're doing now. Well, you know, still in racing after 52 years is, is an amazing thing to me. Um, I don't feel, uh, you know, there's still a kid inside this old body. Yeah, you look great, <laughs> but, by the way. But thank you, thank you. Um, I, I could lose some pounds, but uh, whatever. You, you've done a great job on that, as a matter of fact. Thank you. You look well. Thank and, you very much. Uh, but, yeah, I'm back to the lake full-time, uh, which I'm really glad of. You know, I, I sold my house in the Keys. It was time for that after 25 years and, and spending a winter here. Now it's my second winter uh, back at the Lake of the Ozarks, and I'm enjoying it quite a lot, quite honestly. Even even with what we uh, had going on last week. Yeah, that was testy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But, you know, it since I don't have a, a full-time job like everybody else mostly has to do, you know, and I can take the time to prepare for, you know, a, a winter like this, yeah. you know, I, 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 um, I don't need to work again till March. So that, that's all good. And I'm, what I am doing now is I'm a race director, which is, uh, uh, I put on the races. I deal with all the driver problems when there's crashes, I assess blame. So basically the outlaw became the sheriff. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta say though, uh, if anybody knows, uh, a lot about racing it's you because you've covered uh, a lot of different uh, areas as far as uh, road races and uh, of course uh, uh, winning the IROC race like you did uh, and 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 one of my favorite stories that you tell is uh, was it crossing the finish line on your roof yeah well there's you know 50 years something's going to happen sooner <laughs> or later and uh, and certainly it, it, it does do that occasionally um you know, it, it was kind of neat because I got to do, you know, 50 years of driving in, in six different countries and in every type of car that's been built since the 70s till now, which is a really amazing story uh, in as much as, you know, you look at what a car, a race car was or a street car was back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And then you look at what the technology level is now going into 2023. And it's just it's a phenomenal story right there. It's always about making a race car that uh, is lighter, is uh, is made out of things that uh, are going to perform, but at the same time, you're looking to lose any uh, unnecessary weight on the race car. But I think one of the more interesting things that we've seen over the years is certainly the technology from the standpoint of safety, because uh, now you talk about racing back in the 70s, yeah, and that was, that was like, you know, uh, a wing and a prayer. Uh, well, it was your street car that you, you know, fabricated some roll cage for out of your son's um you know uh swing set <laughs> that's a true story um but you know yeah it's, it's completely different and, and that actually it's, i think it's gone full circle now because this next year coming uh 2023 when we run the daytona 24 hours of daytona mm -hmm. 
the cars have actually been turned the other way around again. They, they've, they've become so fast and so potentially dangerous that they're, they've taken away the things that they learned to do, yeah. downforce in particular. So these new cars won't have anywhere near the grip um, that the ones five years ago did. Um, and there's some good to that, to be honest with you. Are you amazed at the youth involved in the sport? And when I say youth, these some of these kids, you know, they, yeah, they, they, are kids. they were racing, you know, go-karts and things like that. And then all of a sudden, they're in Formula One cars. They're right. in, uh, you know, they're racing in, uh, in, in the various levels of NASCAR, the truck series, and, and all the way up to the cup series. And, you know, I look at these kids and I think to myself, Gosh, they don't even have whiskers yet. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. I was in 1972, I was the youngest driver ever in the United States to be licensed to drive. Right. And it was not a popular decision with everybody, particularly the guys. It used to be you had to, to go to a driving school to get accredited. Uh, you had to be 21 years old. Well, I was the first under 21 ever, but that was at 18. Uh-huh. Now I got guys that I'm teaching and that I'm working with that are 13. So how do you go up and yell at a 13-year-old kid <laughs> for making a mistake? I mean, it's just... It's like talking to your son. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's hard to, to grasp it. It's like no crying in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great line. But, I mean, now we're dealing with kids. They're 13 years old. They're 14 years old. You know, unfortunately, um, w- when an accident happens, you know, if you're dealing with a child, it's it's a whole different perspective than if you're you know dealing with a 21 or 22 year old man you know we can accept the things that we get ourselves into but when you're 12 or 13 years old and your parents put you out there and the parents can be a problem just like in any sport you see all the time yeah you know they can over be overbearing and push too much pressure on you you're still a kid I would have wanted to do it at 13 though yeah (laughs) let's take a phone call caller thanks for joining us here on the daily show good morning yeah, love to hear Dorsey talk about his uh, wreck in the IROC race. I think that was one of the greatest wrecks ever. <laughs> it, that was, you know, it's funny because IROC, International Race of, Challenge, uh, of Champions, was conceived as a television show. And it was very well thought out. Roger Penske was involved in it, Jay Signore, and a bunch of others uh, that uh, Les Richter, you know, who was a great guy in his day. Um, but since it was a television show, and it was a half-hour show in length, Paul Page did all the announcing on that with a guest host, a color, uh, who was a bunch of a different, really experienced guys. If it rained like it did in Talladega that morning, th- this was a morning I'll never forget. Uh, I had to drive in three races in that day. So I had to do the IROC, which is early in the morning down in Talladega in Alabama. Then I took a helicopter jet ride to Topeka, Kansas, and did a race in Topeka. Then another helicopter jet ride all the way out to California to uh, Sears Point. In one day. In one day. I drove three different times across the entire United States. And so uh, it, it kept raining, and we kept getting a start, and we'd be at one lap in, and it'd rain. Mm-hmm. Now, it it was rare that in an IROC race that one car would, would have a, a potentially uh, stronger situation than the others. I mean, they, they were supposed to be 
identical, equal, and they usually were. But every once in a while, there'd be one car that was, was going to run good. Mm-hmm. And after the third time of trying to start this race, the one car that became the one that was going to be good happened to be me. Yeah. You know, and I was, I was in fifth place when that race started, but I could get to the front with no help. I could just blow on by everybody. And by the th- third start, um, they knew it. <laughs> So that wasn't going to happen anymore, you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I lost all my friends that day, you know, and became the, the, the solo guy. Um, so you have all the NASCAR stars, and they are on the same kind of car that they normally drive, on the same tracks they normally drive. Then you got road race guys uh, like myself uh, in their car on a track that you don't ever go to. You don't get to uh, run your car either. So in Iraq, you don't even know what car you're going to get. You have to draw it out of a hat. And then that's the first time you ever sat in it. And then you're going to go race the best guys, the best 12 guys in the world in different forms. So you had Indy cars and Formula One cars. And, you know, it, and so you don't know what you have until you go out there. And um, things can go wrong. <laughs> and that, that Scott Pruitt and, and Jeff Brabham, both road race guys, uh, tried to hook up with me and push me by the lower lane, which we did. We went by Earnhardt. So that was Earnhardt Sr. who was a great friend of mine. That's uh, I met him through IROC, and he was just a fantastic. That's a story to itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but down there on the bottom, him and Al Unser Jr. got along real well. They they were real tight. So Al was pushing uh, Earnhardt, and, and Mark Martin was pushing them. And then on the upper lane, Anyway, long story short, uh, it all went wrong. I got turned sideways, and uh, and I, I started to spin, but when I did, I started down the hill from the top lane, and then Earnhardt hit me right in the driver's door. And it was kind of funny because I could look out the window net, and it was just as close as you and I are. I'm, not, I'm looking at him at the eye. He's looking me in the eye. I'm mm-hmm. like... This is not going to end well. No, it's not. <laughs> and it didn't, you know, so I did the big, huge flip through the infield and, I, you know, didn't get hurt. The car did what it was supposed to do. Um, and I didn't get to see Dale again for about two months. The next time I saw him and we were in the driver's meeting and uh, I just leaned over next to him. I said, hey, sorry about messing up your race at Talladega. He goes, oh, heck. He goes, I forgot about that. He goes, that was fixing and get big, wasn't it? <laughs> I started laughing. Then Les Richter's called us out. He says, you guys got to want to tell us something. You know? yeah. so I'm like, no, it was yeah. driver's meeting. We got in trouble. <laughs> well, still an amazing uh, story. And you mentioned using the uh, the kid's swing set as a, as, as a uh, you know, the roll cage and everything in the vehicle. But uh, that had to be, had you experienced anything like that uh, uh, in the past as far as uh, any kind of a, a situation where you find yourself in where you wrecked and then you flipped? I mean, we've seen some yeah, that, pretty I mean, incredible... that was, just being in IROC was such a privilege and, and, and quite fun and quite scary. Yeah. Uh, and no, I hadn't, especially at that speed, because we were running in, in a pack pushing each other at like 197. So that wreck started on the exit of turn two, but didn't stop till the turn three. So you're flipping there for over a mile. You know, you're just like, this, is this wreck ever going to stop? Any uh, idea how many times you flipped? Uh, it goes kind of funny. It takes off backwards because it was before they put the roof flaps in and all the aero stall features. So that car didn't have that. So when it turned sideways, it took off counter-rotation. So it did one upside-down flip in the air to the wrong direction. Then it hit the ground, and it went one and a half times 
uh, on its side, but then I landed on top of Al Unser Jr. I literally, I went across the top of Earnhardt's hood and slid down his back window, mm-hmm. and it took out his, his wing at the back. And then I hit the ground and started flipping, and when I next thing I hit was right on top of Al Unser Jr., and it was right on his hood, and it took off the intake manifold and the carburetor, broke it off. So he was, I mean, but we weren't done wrecking yet. <laughs> you know. And somehow, you know, all I did, I tried to be like a mouse and find myself a little hole to hide. Yeah. And uh, and it was flipping pretty dang hard, you know. It was going quite quite hard. Yeah. And um, I knew somehow that it it ended up on its wheels. I could feel that it was back on its wheels. So I went, oh, thank God, you know. So I popped my head up to look to see if there was fire, and uh, I wasn't done wrecking still. <laughs> I was just getting ready to hit the infield wall, you know. So I went, oh, yeah. go find your hole again, you know. <laughs> We're not done. Uh, anyway, uh, it, yeah, it, it turned into a big deal. All, everybody was fine. Yeah. Uh, it was funny going back into the infield hospital because I had no realized I, I'd flipped through the mud. There's no windshield anymore. There was no door anymore. There's no window net, nothing. And I'm going through this mud puddle, and I, I get back, and I'm just covered in slime. And I go into the infield infirmary, and little Alec, he was already there, and they had his top of his driver's suit down there checking his heart and stuff. And I walk in through the back door. And he sees I'm, I'm just like a mud man. Yeah. <laughs> he just he falls off on purpose off the gurney under the floor, just clutching his gut, going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so yeah, one of those backstories. Well, it's uh, were you surprised at all that you walked away like you did? You know, it was it it happened so quickly. It the car skipped one time before it took off completely, and I knew. Uh-oh, that's not good, you know. And then the second time when it took off, I knew it was going to be a rough ride. Um, and kind of, I was kind of like knocked out, but not totally knocked out. And so I went to get out of the uh, the driver's door. I went to take the window net down, but there wasn't one. And then I went to, you know, you have to swing your your head and shoulders out of the window, sit on the side of the door, and then swing your feet around. Well, there wasn't a door, <laughs> so so when I went out, I looked. And I went, I'm I'm in a lake or something, yeah, you know, yeah. Which I'm, you know, used to being in the lake, but not in a car. No, no, not at all. <laughs> so I go to get out of the car, and, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to go out here in this mud puddle and get all dirty, you know. So I kind of shimmy down the side of the car, and I could hear the crowd all cheering because I got out. Right, right. But I was, like I said, I was punch drunk. Yeah. You know, and so I'm like, I can't really see anything too much. I just kind of don't know what's going on. Uh, But I'm getting away from the car. And it's like, I'm like trying to pretend that everything's all right. But it's not so good. It's like getting pulled over by a cop when you're drunk and you're trying to convince you. you You're pulling it all inside you and you're going to try to convince this guy that you're fine. Uh Uh-huh. But you're not. But you're not. <laughs> Just like that. Well, you're lucky to have walked away. Yeah, yeah. Did you sustain any injuries at all? The only thing I had was a cherry on, on my hip bone, on the right hip bone from the seatbelt. Right. You know, the seatbelt kind of dug in there. but And my neck was job, a little but... bit sore, but not that bad. And like I say, I had to literally, I, I went back to the locker room, took off that driver's suit full of mud. I still have that, by the way. I have the driver's suit and the helmet. I never cleaned it. It's sitting in my garage, hanging up, and it's just completely destroyed, full of mud, you know, as a reminder of what that was like. Sure. But I ended up jumping in and, and headed to Topeka. <laughs> 
went from there to Topeka. I did, I did call my mom because I knew it was going to make the highlight reel. Right. And I went, I better call her and tell her I'm okay. Exactly. <laughs> If you forget to call mom, that's uh, yeah, that's that's a, a major mess that. up. Yeah, that's a major mess up. We'll call her. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning. We appreciate you listening. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, and uh, uh, did you have a good Christmas? Great to see, great to see Dorsey back. Well, Thank it's, you. It's great to have him back. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're going to, uh, and I will tell our next caller that uh, we are going to. Uh, jump in for a quick bottom of the hour break and uh, call her if you'd like to give us a call back and uh, talk. Uh, I, I know I, I see who the caller is and I know he's probably got uh, some good stories to share as well from his racing days, but uh, I, can you stick around both hours? I think we're probably going to have plenty of content. No, I'm good. All right. <laughs> So, caller, I was just giving you the heads up and give us a call on the other side of the break here, and uh, we'll give you an opportunity. And anyone else out there listening who would like to speak with Dorsey, feel free to give us a call this morning. This is I love doing radio like this. This is so much fun, just listening to someone tell the stories of things that they've done and accomplishments. And, and we know uh, we might talk about your restaurant days. I certainly want to talk about your broadcasting days. But uh, we've got uh, our bottom-of-the-hour break here coming up. Our guest is uh, Dorsey Schrader, known around the Lake of the Ozone. Uh, he did the very first uh, shootout Hall of Fame induction ceremony. I remember I was there the night that you did that. And uh, then I kind of started doing uh, some of those. And I know Mike Clayton uh, from over at Mix has done some of those as well. And uh, remember plenty of, of times coming out to Dorsey's Pit Stop and hanging out and having a good meal. And uh, and, and I was, uh, I, I don't know if you caught this or not when I was talking the other day, but there was a young man who, who came out to your restaurant when he was in the truck series. And he showed up with Stephen Herman, whose family used to own Paul's. Yep. And I know who it is. He, he had a big stack of his his hero uh, cards his, yeah. yeah and he walked in and nobody knew this kid from adam <laughs> but as he progressed through uh you know truck series to the next level to the cup series he became a phenomenon and uh do you know whatever happened to carl edwards well he he retired he's still in columbia um and uh carl was Young, upcoming guy. He was racing a lot in, uh, you know, around around the Lake area. Quite honestly, right. he ended up driving for Jack Roush, who was what I who I drove for in Ford Motor Company, and uh, and and just you know he was the guy famous for the backflip when right. he won. Right. He'd backflip off the side of the door, and they they tried to make him not do that because he figured he was going to get hurt sooner or later. Mm-hmm. But uh, he refused. He, that was his trademark, and you know people loved him. He was he was a wonderful guy, great driver. Right. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's, that's a neat story right there. It certainly is. He showed up, and I remember getting the chance to interview him and talk with him, and I thought after years and years and years and finally seeing him in the Cup Series and all the interviews he did, I thought, I, I, I can one-up some of those broadcasters because I, I interviewed him in his early days, and, and we talked to I quite extensively. I still have that card in my motorhome in, in the short bus, yeah. The short bus has still got Carl's, if you need a driver, call me still have it (laughs) that's great and he went i guess it was the following week he went to texas and he won the truck series race he was he was a fantastic driver and uh very determined and you know i don't know the reason at this point 
why he decided to retire. Well, he'd made enough money yeah. for sure, but that that's not usually the case. He'd had a couple of big wrecks, and he had a confrontation with another driver that was getting pretty ugly. Yeah. And I don't know if that had a part in it or not, but I can tell you, you know, when you start out like he did and like I did as an amateur and you're running uh, local tracks, that's the most fun you could ever have. When you go pro... You can't go back, yeah, and you lose all the fun. Yeah, well, and that's a, a lot of people uh, kind of realize and understand when you're working hard and you're coming up and you finally get there, and then you're there, and uh, your whole life is right yeah, there for it's everybody. It's a little see. different than what you thought there was. Yeah, <laughs> you know? we're going to step aside and take a quick break. We'll come back and talk some more with Dorsey Schrader. And your phone calls are welcome on the Key Radio Community Hotline at five seven three six three three fifty three ninety five. This is Bill Munhausen with another key opinion. Public schools need to develop clear policies regarding advocacy in the classroom. School children are increasingly being exposed to the personal view of teachers, views that often violate the values and worldview of the families they serve. Let me describe what may have taken place in our public school and takes place at many schools. A teacher decided to display an LGBTQ banner in the classroom while also suggesting books describing the associated lifestyles. Some would say the teacher is merely affirming individual rights, but the teacher is also promoting sexual practices. It's impossible to separate the two. Suppose a heterosexual male teacher promoted his sexual preferences to other people's children, particularly young girls in his classroom. Suppose he recommended books describing the wisdom of gaining sexual experience by partnering with a mature adult. Would that type of advocacy be acceptable? LGBTQ is not the only form of advocacy taking place in schools. Educators have a natural tendency to weigh in on societal issues such as racism, income inequality, bullying, women's rights, and more. All of these highly charged subjects create opportunities for conflict between public school teachers and parents and also affect the quality of knowledge presented to students. Our schools must be committed to convey knowledge rather than indoctrination. Reality is that Americans are deeply divided politically, sociologically, and morally, and public education has to navigate the divide in responsible ways. Because public schools represent the families in a community, they must develop written policies that equitably limit the role of teachers in promoting and advocating beyond the school's curriculum. Public school teachers must not advocate one political party or one interpretation of history or one preferred sports team for that matter. They certainly shouldn't be promoting a particular sexual lifestyle knowing that lifestyle might be contrary to strongly held moral convictions of community members. They are teaching other people's children and must respect the values that families teach their children. The place for their personal advocacy must be separate from their professional lives. So let's not make every individual teacher decide where to draw the line. The school board must establish a school-wide policy to enforce the same line for everyone. 
Heat Radio wants to help our community by offering a platform for all groups and organizations to share their message. If you have a pre-recorded public service announcement talking about who you are and what you do, email it to kbsfree65 at gmail.com. Rotary clubs, veterans groups, animal shelters, fundraising organizations, and more are all welcome to send us their pre-recorded message. Key Radio reserves the right to deny or accept any PSAs received. Can your business benefit from free consulting help? If you are a business owner with a website and social media presence and would like more market share and audience reach, a student assistant might be perfect for you. The Missouri Small Business Development Center at State Fair Community College has partnered with the accredited Digital Market Class to offer one-on-one collaboration to benefit businesses and students at no cost to you. Students can help with digital marketing, web design, search engine optimization, advertising and marketing, social media, and more. Your only commitment is to collaborate with your student through recurring meetings and assignment discussions. It's a win for businesses and students. Spring semester is January 17 through May 14. If you want to know more, contact Kelly Asbury by phone at 660-596-7350. Start 2023 outright. Learn evidence-based health and wellness, conflict resolution, tools, and accomplish peace. Learn growth mindsets. Learn to take action and be accountable. Learn to grow from life's challenges. You'll hear six speakers, three virtual and three in person. You'll receive a Scrum Master eBook and Compass Purpose 2.0 book a gift certificate for complimentary coaching, peace fire and two fire training, be beverages and finger foods, all for $49. On January 19th from 1 to 4.30 at Encompass Purpose in Max Creek. To reserve your spot, please call 573-286-5625 or email at encompasspurpose at gmail.com. This is Happy Headlines. I'm David Beach bringing you good news and heartwarming stories to help you through your day. It's kind of our catchphrase. And then there's stories like this. Sometimes it's just a simple story of how people step in to help. Elizabeth and Jake Landut said their wedding was like a fairy tale. And at the reception, as Elizabeth's father was giving a speech, there was a bit of an interruption. The guests were pointing out that the building next door to the reception had caught on fire. Everyone had to evacuate. Well, the wedding couple did, but they really had no idea where to go. So they decided to just walk away. They were on Mackinac Island, and Mackinac Island doesn't have cars. So they walked back to the church where they were first married and opted to pray for everyone's health and safety. They got what they were praying for. The building was saved. No one was hurt. And the reception... The community stepped up. The chef at the venue took all 120 meals, which were only partially prepared, and told the staff to bring them to the restaurant next door. We cooked it, sauced it, and off down the street it went. They served the meal at a resort that had event space available. What they didn't have, another restaurant provided. A bellhop volunteered to bartend. A lady on the street carried a box of flowers, and in less than an hour, the article stated the bride was back to blushing. To have them pick up the reception out of the ashes in a very literal sense made the wedding better than we ever could have imagined and one that 
while we don't necessarily recommend, it's a day and an experience that we will cherish forever, Jake said. See, it's amazing how people can come together, even in this day and age when it seems like we're so torn apart. Maybe it's not as bad as you sometimes think. That is what this podcast is all about. This is Happy Headlines. I'm David Beach. Thank you so much for listening. Stay happy, stay healthy, and find a way to make someone's day. This is your chance to get involved in community radio, Lake of the Ozarks, with 89.3, The Key. 839, and we are back for hour number one of The Daily Show. On the program tomorrow, we're going to be talking with my good buddy Frosty Wooldridge out of Colorado. Frosty and I will do uh, a little something-something regarding Title 42. And, of course, we know that the southern border is, again, taking a hit and has been for quite some time. We'll also talk with Marlena Hatmaker. She's going to come in and talk about the swinging bridge over there in Brumley, Missouri. There is a group of folks that have uh, stepped up to save the swinging bridge. And if you've been out there uh, recently, uh, within the last year or the last couple of years, you've seen the condition of that bridge. And these folks know and understand what a landmark it is and how much it means to the area. I mean, the bridge itself is probably uh, as important to us as the dam in terms of landmarks and reasons that people have uh, come to the Lake of the Ozarks. They find themselves out there by the Swinging Bridge. So we're going to be talking to those folks tomorrow. Ike Skelton and Professor Jim Paisley on the program on Wednesday. We'll get Dave Maupin back on Friday. And uh, just a, a good show lined up for you each day this week as we get ready to wrap up the uh, the year that uh, is, still is, 2022. 34 degrees in uh, Osage Beach, 32 in Camdenton, 35 the high today. It looks like uh, we're going to take a bit of a nosedive on the uh, temperature end of things. 841, our guest is Dorsey Schrader. And uh, Dorsey just, he called me up on a whim one day, and I reached out to him, and I said, hey, how'd you like to come in and uh, uh, tell some stories about your days as a race car driver and, of course, as uh, a restaurateur? All of us remember Dorsey's pit stop uh, down Nichols Road. That was a much more dangerous occupation <laughs> than racing. <laughs> Especially when you're involved with that uh, uh, that special someone in your life, your wife Kim. Yeah, we you know that was uh, uh, that's so much work. Yeah, anybody who's never been in that business, um, you know, if you can if you can survive working with your wife in a restaurant, you you probably go okay. <laughs> you, you do okay. <laughs> We'll talk a little bit about that as well as his days as uh, a broadcaster, and he's still broadcasting. We've got a caller on the line, and uh, caller, I appreciate you holding on. Good morning. You're on The Daily Show. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Mid of the 60s, Elliot Robinson and I came up together through uh, first the Porsche Owners Club and then the SCCA Drivers School out at Riverside, and uh, he went on into Cobras initially, and where I went into Formula V and then Formula Ford. But I wonder if any of those distance events that you drove, did you ever uh, share a ride with Elliot? As a matter of fact, Elliot and I uh, shared more than a ride. Um, we both actually won a Can-Am race uh, co-driving at Mid-Ohio uh, not that long ago. 
in Rob Dyson's car in the Riley uh, Mark III prototype. Um, he was my teammate in that. And in several other races, we, we shared at uh, 12 Hours of Sebring quite a few times. Um, we also have shared uh, duty in the in the control room of the races. He's uh, working for IMSA now, International Motorsports Association, and he's in uh, the driver driver, I forget what they call it, discipline. Uh, he looks at every one of the wrecks that happens during the race, and him and a committee of guys uh, rule on that as to what penalty to apply and also uh, the fault factor as who did what to who. Um, that's kind of what I'm doing also uh, in vintage racing now. So, yeah, I've, I've actually been around Elliot and been with Elliot, and he is a phenomenal man. He's still in unbelievably good shape, still married to Luna. Uh, his wife and uh, for, for forever, and uh, and he's still fast. He's still plenty fast if he wants to go do it again. I had only one opportunity to be on the track with him at the same time, the six-hour Riverside Enduro in 1968, and the Cotton Goff Porsche 911S, they asked me to co-drive, and I happened to end up being faster than the original drivers. I used our time to set us fourth on the grid, and Elliot was first. And I was going to be the for the last two hours, but unfortunately, the car broke before I had a a chance to get in it. But uh, I always wanted to know, you know, if I could uh, turn in lap times similar to those guys running up front, and that my only experience up until that point had been Formula Vs and Formula Fords. Uh, How did your lap times compare with Elliott and those various? races that you're in well elliot now is quite a lot older than i am i'm 70 now and so elliot's got to be approaching 80 i would think so i was uh i was usually a little faster than he was but he's so rock solid and when i say a little faster it's, you know, i'm talking in tenths not not seconds sure you know tenths of a second sure. and uh you know riverside that was a great racetrack and and i ran there uh right last year they had that open uh in that same race you're talking about the six hour that was out there and um mm-hmm. you know it, that that was a, a fantastic facility and and like so many others uh, the property became worth more than you could possibly make running race cars on it and then they turned it into housing uh, and that's what happens to, you know, so many of the racetracks. It's ironic that we have now a, a, a really nice racetrack here at Lake of the Ozarks that's a four-mile facility, which is just short of four miles, puts it second largest in the United States. Um, that that's, uh, it used to be a turkey farm out there. So uh, yeah. we'll see how that goes. I mean, it's um, – but Elliot's still around. He's still really competitive. Uh, he was, he's so much fun. He was, a, you know, just a fantastic driver. I remember we were running, uh, speaking out in California, we were at Monterey at Laguna Seca then. Um, and we were sharing the same car that we won in, in, in mid Ohio. And I drove the first stint and it was, uh, we were leading. The car was good and it started raining. So we had to come in for uh, a change to rain tires and we were going to do the driver change at the same time, which was good for me. I, you know, I, I'd done the part in the dry part, so let's get the old man in there in the rain. But uh, one of the weird things that happens, and it's happening in NASCAR right now too, is that the wheel nut is made out of a different material than the hub that it bolts to, and the 
camphor that they use where the nut meets into the center of the wheel is a different metal as well. And those metals, when it starts raining, they have different densities, so they shrink at different levels. And what happened was that the, the right front tire just would not come off no matter what. So they sent poor Ellie out there on three rain tires and one slick. Oh, <laughs> That did not work well at all. And he said that was most he's ever spun in one race ever, and he didn't want to talk about it. So <laughs> he's a good guy. I saw that you uh, have a uh, something motorsports uh, operation going on in uh, Osage Beach. Uh, what are you doing there? Well, it's always been my headquarters here, and, and you know I've done everything through it. I, I based my operation out of there, whether it be broadcasting or whether it be you know the driving aspect or even like buying and selling of equipment um, is all there, and it's always been there. I've, I've lived here with my parents when I was a kid, but I started uh, – I built my house here in 88. 89 is when things really took off for me. Um, with Jack Roush and with Ford, and I spent 12 years with those guys, and, and, and I was making uh, really good money for that time period, and uh, and I built my house here then, and have always uh, called it home. Uh, Carl Edwards told me that Jack Roush was just one superb, uh, really decent uh, individual. Uh, you know, those two plane crashes of him, somebody needed to tell him something. <laughs> they well, they finally Jack convinced him he doesn't him. need to be. <laughs> you know, he can't tell Jack anything. I flew with Jack when Jack was still getting his pilot's training license with a guy named Dave Zantop, who is his instructor. And it was without a doubt. One of the scariest parts of my life ever is is flying with Jack, but uh, yeah, he Jack is a a brilliant, absolutely brilliant man. He's he is the highest level of mathematician that there is, and he uh, he doesn't sleep. All he does is think. He thinks and works and works and thinks and uh, and he is one of the greatest people you'll ever meet. You don't want to get on his bad side. He doesn't like you crashing his cars, and if you blow up an engine, there better be a damn good reason. <laughs> if, if, if you were more scared flying in an airplane with Jack as compared to being on a racetrack with, uh, with Dale Earnhardt, you know, playing bumper tag and everything. Why that must have been pretty frightening then. Oh yeah, it, it was. It was. It was that. I remember Earnhardt, uh, Daytona 500 uh, in '92. Um, I had a really good car, and it was ironic. It was Junie Donlevy, one of the nicest guys ever in the world from Virginia, and um, I was doing some development driving for Ford, and we were changing stuff on the front of the car, and it was not always in the right way. You know, some of that wasn't looking good, but the car was fast enough. And I, I had teammates with uh, Mark Martin um, was driving Jack's car. And, you know, the Wood Brothers were uh, were helping out in this project. All the Ford teams were helping this, this, this thing go forward. Um, and we ended up, the car was just not right. And, and so we decided to try a Banjo Matthews car, which was a, a car that hadn't even turned a wheel yet. And we put it out of the trailer on the track, and it instantly went to the top of the charts. And I ended up qualifying uh, the Daytona 500 in third. So it was Davey Allison, Mark Martin, and, and myself. Wow. All fours up at the front. And then we were doing the final practice before the race. And 
drafting practice or whatever because of me being a, a rookie or a new guy, no, nobody wants to work with you then because the chances are you're going to make a mistake and everybody's going to be involved. The big one, you know, which we always see at Daytona. We always see at Talladega. So uh, I was running by myself because nobody wanted to run with me, but I was running faster than the entire field was, you know, collectively. And so Judy got on the radio and says, breathe the throttle this time down the straightaway and let those guys catch you. I said, why would I do that? Because <laughs> we need to know what the car does with cars around it. Right. So the lead car in that 12-car pack that called me, caught me was Earnhardt. And uh, so I saw him coming, and it was the weirdest thing. I mean, I was wide open, but now I'd lost my advantage, and they were catching me really fast. And when in about 10 car lengths behind, when Earnhardt's got there car got there my back window started like shuddering real hard bam 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 mm -hmm. and that's when i had a mullet still and the hair on the back of my helmet which came out from underneath curled up over the top i'm like this isn't gonna be good <laughs> <laughs> so when he did catch me with that whole freight train it lifted the back of the car completely off the ground i almost spun out but i caught it uh so anyway, I pulled in, and, and we weren't running much spoiler. I mean, I think Earnhardt was running 50, 52 degrees. I think I was running like 30. Mm -hmm. And um, so where he was parked was right across where I was parked in the infield garage. And in between us was the driver's lounge, which is a, a, a fancy name for a toilet. I see. <laughs> so I went straight to there first. <laughs> anyway, stopped by the old driver's lounge. Yeah, huh? stopped by the lounge. And when I came out, he was waiting. He was, he's like giving me the finger, come here. Uh -huh. And he, he, so I went over and he goes, what, what was that? What exactly was that about? I went, well, I told Junie, I said that, you know, we're not running enough spoilers. How much are you running? I went, 32. And he goes, and he grabbed me by my earlobe. He goes, come here. And he pulled me across <laughs> the garage area and he went in the toolbox and he gave me an angle meter. And he says, put it on my wing. I did it. He goes, what's it say? I said, 52. He goes, so you think you're better than I am? I went, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Honest God, true. Caller, thank you so much for checking in with us here this morning. Uh, you know, you, you, you've had the opportunity to be around uh, a lot of the uh, big names yourself included in the sport. Who did you really kind of uh, enjoy being around or who maybe more or less took you under their wing to show you uh, show you the ropes? Because they said, now, this guy, he's going to be a big star someday. And so uh, it'd be nice if maybe he had the... Uh, the tutelage of, of somebody like myself to, to kind of give him all the, the pointers that he needs. Dale Sr. was the best-hearted fellow that you'll ever meet. Um, if he liked you, uh, there was a price to pay for that mm -hmm. because he was a practical joker. <laughs> and if he liked you, you were gonna, you would be on the bottom end of that most of the time. Right. But also... If he liked you, you know, and he saw that you were struggling or, or if, if there was something he could help, he always would. You know, so when, when I went into IROC and, and when I started running the first times in the um, NASCAR Winston Cup, I was trying to make that transition out of Trans Am because I'd already won that championship twice. And I was going back to wanting, you know, the money was in NASCAR. That's where the money was. So I was trying to make that transition over to that. Um and with that, you know, new guys come in. Like I say, they, they wreck first quite a bit. And, and so guys don't want to be around them because 
it happens it doesn't just do one car so he was he was really fun he was fun as a practical joker too i mean you, you just couldn't you just don't know where he was going to come from you know, what are some of the things that he did is there is there any one uh one instance that you remember in particular as far as being uh pranked by dale you'll Singer? never see him coming you know he, yeah. he comes out of nowhere like a ghost and trips you or something <laughs> you know? and, and just just the way the things he said and, and like I said, when we had the big wreck, he had forgotten about that. He goes, that was fixing to get big. I said, well, <laughs> fixing? <laughs> you know, but he had a couple of big ones, too. So, I mean, he'd been through that before. But I didn't, I didn't, I thought that was well beyond the fixing to get big part. I thought it was big enough already. But, what do you think of Ozarks International Raceway here at the Lake of the Ozarks and the potential for this thing to turn into something huge? Because that is all I have heard from people like yourself that have been in the business. It. You know, the track itself is a fun, it's a phenomenal accomplishment by one guy. Right. I mean, for him to put in almost a four-mile track with 19 corners on that elevation and to make it as, as absolutely – it's frightening. It's not for the faint of heart, mm. and it's not probably a good beginner track at this point. I mean, I know he's got it segmented where he can you can run a shorter course than the whole thing, uh, which is probably a good idea. It is not a place you want to make a mistake. It's really fast, really, really fast, and it's uh, it's not a hobbyist area. It's it's a pro area for sure. But you know, I I know that he is is working on that and he's changing things. It is phenomenal. the The problem it has, the very biggest problem it has, is there's no infrastructure there, you know. And and you're talking about on a big weekend, I I normally get three to four hundred cars. Mm -hmm. So with the three to four hundred cars, you're going to have four people at least per car, and there's nowhere over on that side of the lake at this point where they can stay. And they're coming in on on major holiday weekends, and we already know what that is like here. Exactly. So everything's sold out already. Uh, there's not a lot of places over on that side of the lake. There's no hotels. There's no airport, which I'm used to because I've been going to St. Louis Airport, driving that 160 miles back before we had the 70 mile hour speed limit when it was 55, and it takes a lot. You know, it's 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 three hours each way, um, and so. That becomes a problem because all these teams, with the exception of the truck drivers, fly um, and, and all the drivers. Now, a lot of them have their own planes, so they could go to Lee C. Fine or they could go to, you know, Osage or whatever and, and not be so bad off. But still, they have to drive to the other side of the lake, either across the toll bridge or go all the way through Camdenton to find any kind of a what they would consider nice place to stay. It would seem to me, though, you have to put the facility in first and then build around it. And it will that will happen because I mean the money he spent there is enormous. Yeah, it's enormous, and so motorhome parks will come, hotels will be built. Uh, it's going to bring people in. I mean, our a a big weekend at a race weekend. You know, you're going to end up with. Like I said, three hundred cars. You're going to end up with the support crews for all that. Fan based. We'll see how that works. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of fans. When we used to have Mid America Raceways out in Wentzville, we used to fill that up, and it was coming from Oklahoma. It was coming from Kansas, coming out of St. Louis. There's plenty uh, coming out of Iowa. Des Moines has you know a, a huge following of race people uh, from Knoxville all the way. You know, when they had the Des Moines Street Race, mm -hmm. uh, that was that was a monster event there too. Have you had a chance to drive it yet? 
I have, yeah. yeah. I, I've been out there. It's it's really fun. What were you about? What, what were you driving? <laughs> My Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that that would be safe, but no, that's not really true either. You know. Uh, but I've been yeah, I've been out there to talk to the keys to a Corvette, and they say go. Yeah, I, I got to ride around with the owner. Um, in in a truck in a, in a rescue truck mm-hmm. and uh, we went around pretty fast you know and and, and he knows the track and, and so it was a really good learning curve yeah. for me to, to to see the the thought process of how he designed that and how they did that he, there was a lot of help from ford um the ford racing facility in canada is more or less the road racing uh facility nowadays now that jack roush is so involved in winston cup and he's moved to uh mooresville uh, North Carolina. Um, this his old shop used to be in Livonia in in Michigan, and so they uh, th- that's changed a lot. And there's a guy named Larry Holt who owns a um, the the Canada version of Ford Steel, and he designed helped design that track and uh, helps design the race cars as well. It's a neat, neat, neat place. The only thing it is, I mean, the, the elevation change is so severe that cars will drop down and they'll go by you. They'll drop down into a valley and you won't see them again for another mile and they'll pop up on top of a mountain over there somewhere. And, uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, it, but it's all fixable. There's, it's there now and it, it is, it is massive. You will not believe how big that is. It is straight up 9 o'clock on the Midwest Coast. We're going to take our top of the hour break. We're going to come back and talk some more with Dorsey Schrader. It's been a fun hour, and uh, Dorsey has uh, so graciously uh, decided to stick around for another hour. If you've got a question or a comment, 573-633-5395. Sharing the life and times, and uh, still plenty of times to come with this legend uh, as we know him here at the Lake of the Ozarks. Great guy. I mean, anytime you walked into uh, Dorsey's pit stop, he was always there to uh, greet and say hello and uh, tell you some great stories, much like he's done with us here this morning. And it has been a uh, a true honor to have you in the studio with Thank me. You. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll be back after this with more On the Key. It's time for another hour of community-based programming. You're listening to 89.3 KEYK, Osage Beach, Missouri, The Key. The following is a Thunderbolt West Media production. Step up, step on the sea. This is a Living Off Grid Power and Information Show update. These updates can be heard on 89.3 Key Radio, Osage Beach, Missouri, as well as being posted on my website, which is livingoffgridshow.wixsite.com forward slash LOG show. I'm your host, Jim Calhoun, and thanks for listening. And I'd like to tell everybody, thank you for supporting my show, the Living Off Grid Power and Information Show. I really appreciate it. Now, what I'd like to tell you today is that I think it's time for everyone to start buddying up. What I mean by that is start finding your true friends, the people that will be there for you, come thick or thin. Now, I think we've gone past the time of trying to wake people up or trying to convince them of some impending doom that I think is coming. I sure hope not. 
But I think it's time for all of us to start really focusing on our family and friends that we can count on. And if we find ourselves in a worldwide event that's very unpleasant, you may need to reach out for help. And you want to make sure that you reach out to the right people. And I think that my analogy is like changing a tire the day before the storm. If you know that you have to use the car later on in the week, don't wait until the stormy day to change the tire. Change the tire the day before when it's still nice out. Now, I'm using that analogy to explain that right now, you need to talk with people and find out if you can count on them. And don't just accept lip service of, okay, yeah, no, really talk to them. Come up with plans, formulate, strategize. I think that it's really time for neighborhoods to come together. I really think it's time for everyone to get their headspace right. Then you need to get your family taken care of as far as get everyone on the same page as much as possible. And after you get that done, reach out to your neighbors, reach out to your friends and your communities. And really support your small town local businesses, now more than ever. Because if things really get as bad as what I think is going to happen, we're going to see lots of people go out of business. And the last people you want to see out of business are your local friends and neighbors that run their businesses because it's them that's going to bring your community back. It's them that might be your salvation. And so everyone support your small town stores. Please do that. The big box stores don't care anything about you. Support your small stores. Talk to your family. Talk to your friends. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to anyone that you think is important for your safety and your survival. And tell people, openly tell them, if you love them. Tell them you love them, and tell them you'll support them, and tell them how you'll support them. It's important that we get this information out to each other before the storm. Because the worst time to plan anything is during the middle of chaos. And so plan things now. Talk to people now. We can't count on the federal government or state government and possibly even local government to come to our aid if we really do have some problems coming down the pike. And I also want to tell everybody I do have a newsletter I'm starting to put out. And if you'd like to get my newsletter, all you have to do is send me an email. And that's jim at offgridliving.faith. So just get a hold of me and I'll put you on my list. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Thunderbolt West Media. We're introducing something new on Key Radio called Ozark's Voices. Express yourself anytime on the air without commitments or radio skills. Just email billm at orioncenter.org and I'll contact you about recording anything from five minutes to a half hour. We can record by phone or in my office or you can record it and send it to me. 
It can be a monologue or a conversation, whatever works best for you. Then I'll produce it as part of an Ozarks Voices show on Key Radio. Any topic is fine. Hobbies, comments about lake happenings, conspiracy theories, or say hi to Grandma. I'll make sure you sound great. Send a message to billm at orioncenter.org. That's B-I-L-L-M at O-R-I-O-N-C-E-N-T-E-R dot org. And be a part of Ozarks Voices. Part of the solution. Join the lake's only community radio station, 89.3, the key. the key. Right back here at 909, man. I got to tell you, this is uh, this is a great way to start the new week with some great stories from our guest Dorsey Schrader. And uh, again, if you have any uh, questions or comments, feel free to pick up the phone, give us a call at 573-633-5395, 33 in Osage Beach, 32 in Camdenton, 35 the expected high. Then the uh, bottom is going to kind of drop out of the uh, temperature here just a little bit, and then we'll uh, we'll see what's going on. We'll uh, kind of figure things out, and hopefully... I hope we didn't just lock everything up here. Sometimes, uh, depending on, no, we're doing okay. No, we're still doing all right. Okay, good. But uh, the weather here in Missouri is just uh, unbelievable in the sense that uh, one minute you're at 35 degrees, and then on Thursday we're looking at uh, a high somewhere around 62, 63 and uh, that good old Missouri weather as we get ready to wrap up the year. Uh, 52 on the 31st, and uh, we'll usher in the new year with a partly cloudy sky on Sunday and a high of 52 degrees. But a little bit of a build to get there. As I said, uh, 35 today, 39 tomorrow, uh, 52 on Wednesday. We did get snow for Christmas, so I hope that made you happy. A lot of folks weren't as concerned about the snow as they were about uh, the temperatures and things along those lines, but it looks like for the most part we've made it through uh, as well. 9.10 is our time. Again, we... uh 
Uh, we'll check the uh, current lake level out there at uh, Ameren and see what's going on as far as uh, what we've got. Uh, lake level at 657.98, river level at 556.77, and the surface water temp at 42 degrees. Getting ready for the annual winter drawdown. That'll be coming up soon, so you probably want to tend to your docks or call your dock company and uh, let them know, and they'll tell you what you can do to uh, get through this without uh, putting too much stress or strain on the uh, old dock. And, of course, you want to keep an eye on that electrical system as well. So, Dorsey, you at some point decided you wanted to get into uh, to broadcasting, and, and when did that actually take place for you? It was kind of a, you know, right place, wrong time, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I was, at, um, I think the first time I did that was at Watkins Glen up in New York, and uh, I think Tommy Kendall was, was slated to be the color um, for that race, which was the butt at the Glen. Uh-huh. Um, he ended up uh, having a, a massive accident um, at that track uh, on a mechanical failure on his car. He broke it both legs and wow. was in bad shape for quite a long time. Um, anyway, um, I got the nod. Uh, I, I wasn't looking for it, but they, you know, they knew that Tommy and I were friends first of all, and that we did the same things, and and so that's how it happened. And it uh, it just continually developed when they started Speed Vision. Um, way back when, it's hard to believe that that's so, you know, 30 years ago and that I did 20 years of broadcasting with them and it went by pretty quick, but Speed Vision was the first deal and it was comprised of all racers. Everybody in, in the broadcast end of things was an X driver or had some affiliation that was normal than just a voice, you know, they, they all... We're, we're pretty tight. I raced with all those guys. Uh, and there was a bond between us that was magical because of that. We, we'd spent most of our lives growing up um, doing this, uh, trying to do the same thing anyway. So Speed Vision ultimately became Speed Channel, and then it became Speed, and then it became Fox, and then it went away. You know, it uh, unfortunately, it, it digressed on each level uh, from where it started. Uh, but we had some super talent. We had Bob Varshan. We had Dave Despain, who's just a wonderful human being. Dave, Dave's shows were solid, good. He w- he was a really good guy, and he was a racer. He was more motorcycle, actually, than he was uh, automobile. But, you know, he knew what he was talking about. And, and uh, a lot of shows came off of that. You know, back when people started thinking that, hey, you know, racing up. We had TNN, TNT. There was a bunch of cable networks, affiliates that were being, you know, started to try to copy what Speed had, Speed Vision had done because mm-hmm. uh, it was a big following. I mean, that, that was, I think it was originally on a Tuesday, which isn't a hot TV day, and it became one. <laughs> I remember the first time I happened to be watching Speed, and I saw you on there, and it just blew my mind, and I thought... <laughs> I'm not changing the channel for anything. I'm going to sit here and, and, and watch and listen. And, and and how did you develop into the broadcaster that you had become over the years? Because, uh, you know, uh, obviously you got a lot of knowledge about the sport, but then you have to learn all the tricks of the trade. I think the talent around us uh, did that, you know, just being with the guys that we were with at that time that were all young guys back then, yeah. you know, and, and, and wanting to put a product out there that was good really good yeah. you know and and it um i think we just learned off each other a lot and and like i said i had raced with calvin fish and brian till and lee diffie came in uh you know from australia but he was a motorcycle guy also but it, we were all in the same 
age group uh, having way too much fun. Uh, and it just, it, you, you could tell, you could, there was a chemistry that was going on in that group that uh, telling stories and because we, we got in more trouble than we should. <laughs> well, some of the guys I remember early on, Jackie Stewart being a big one. Uh, yeah. Jackie and then Benny Parsons and Benny was uh, great. I worked, I worked with Benny. I substituted for Benny when he when he had his eye surgery and I, I substituted for him a couple times he had health issues. Right. Um and but he was he was electric. I mean the people the fans loved him so much. Uh he was larger than life. He was larger than life and people would bake him pies and cakes and cookies. And, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and he, he had a, a station down at the end of the grandstand going in turn one at Watkins Glen, and they would bring by offerings. And he was up on a modified deer stand, it looked like, you know. But he had one of the big hard cameras up there, so he had to sit on his he had to sit down, and the camera was swinging around the top of his head. <laughs> and there's these old ladies coming with cakes and all of So when I substituted for him, you know, they're bringing me all this food. I'm like, I can't eat this. Yeah? You know, it's like, but it was, uh, yeah, he was great. Uh, Bob Jenkins was a fantastic guy. Uh, he was really, really super special to work with. Jackie Stewart and I actually worked a lot together at Ford, but in a driving capacity. He's a, Jackie Stewart's an interesting guy. He He's on the uh, Rolex board of directors. He is on Moet Chandon. He is on Ford Motor Company. I think he draws a, a $1 million a year salary from them just to be there. And, and we did a lot of test development driving. He'd fly over from Europe, and uh, then I'd go in with him, and we'd go to the, the two test tracks, one in Dearborn and one down in Naples, Florida. They're identical, and they're all computerized, and we'd drive these cars, future cars, um, special package cars like police cars, and, uh, and Jackie would uh, – give the engineers grief <laughs> that's the nicest word i can say right but uh yeah he he's uh he's quite the guy and uh, a, a wonderful guy to to be around what do you think is the, the 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 biggest thing that you've learned as a broadcaster as far as uh i don't know developing a technique or a style uh, what do you feel like, uh, where did you really see improvement in your ability to be a broadcaster? You know, I think one of the things that I did get taught was that I need to, racers like everybody else within their own little world, develop a vernacular to themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and we say things that, you know, a, a person just listening for the first time wouldn't understand. And so one of the things I think, uh, someone told me, you need to explain that. Mm -hmm. Every time you hear somebody say something that you would understand, but you don't think someone else would, you have to explain it. And so I thought, started thinking from that standpoint, you know, about all the different terminologies that we use and, you know, trying to explain in, in simplistic way what, what what, what we're talking about, like understeer and oversteer and, mm -hmm. you know, and then when we started getting into aerodynamics, you know, having them downforce on this and the little splitters in the front and what they, there's so much technical stuff that goes right over people's heads. And if you can educate them, then you're going to get a, a, a bigger audience, right? you know, because it won't be just out there. When we talk about cans, 
and that's headphones. Yeah, headphones, yeah. And somebody said, well, what do you keep referring, why do you keep referring to things as cans? Like they were looking for cans on my head. And I said, <laughs> well, no, that's terminology that we use for headphones. We call right. them cans. And so I understand completely what it is you're talking about in terms of explaining exactly what is going on so the listener doesn't feel lost and the viewer doesn't feel lost and they tune out because they're like, well, they're talking over my head or they're saying things I don't even understand and making them feel like a part of the broadcast. And, and I think that that is something that is so important relating to these people. And you're a very relatable individual because I know uh, from the very first time I met you, uh, you were a very nice gentleman and very easily you know, you're very approachable and, 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 you know, you're, you sit down and talk to just about anybody, uh, about anything. The other part of that, you know, is if you get too technical, it, it gets boring. So I always have to mix some sense of humor into yeah, it. Though. Yeah. You know, it, it, and you're good at that. <laughs> it, I mean, some of it just bounces off their head, you know? Yeah. I said, I remember I was working with Brian Till and we were, you and I were talking off air for a minute about, you know, what do you do when it rains mm-hmm. and you got to fill for this whole time. And we had a situation, we were out in Utah, out in um, Tuella uh, at a racetrack and we were doing an endurance race out there and it should have ended um, in the daylight, but because of things that went on, we ran out of light in the middle of it. And uh, we we had no preparation for that. We didn't have any outside lights. So when we went to do winter interviews, um, there's no lights to backlight anything with. <laughs> so it, it you know we're like we're scuffling around trying to figure out what to do with that. And so Brian Till was getting all. I could tell he was tensing up. Yeah. You know, and he was doing he was doing uh, he was doing the play by play, and I, I could I could see him fumbling for tr- something to do. You know, and, and, I, and I just said to him, Brian, you know, you know what happens now, and he goes. What? I said, this is when the spider monkeys come out of the mountains. I said, all those toolboxes are open. You got to start hiding tools. They steal tools like crazy. <laughs> He's looking at me and goes, have you lost your mind? We're on TV. But anyway, it, it did what it had to do. You yeah. know? He goes, spider monkeys? Really? I went, they live up in the mountains there. <laughs> I don't know what's in those mountains. I doubt it's spider monkeys. <laughs> That's that's a good quality of a broadcaster to know when a fellow broadcaster is having a rough time and you have to kind of yeah, yeah. step in right. and lighten the well, mood. That I mean that that was the deal about us being friends for so long. Mm-hmm. You know that I could read the personality. And, you know, and and Calvin Fish is is the consummate professional. So if he if he has something that doesn't go a hundred percent right, it he starts thinking about that too much. You know, and that somebody's got to get in there and, you know, break break the monotony of all and, and go down some other path. You know, that's, that's what I would do. You know, just come in with something totally off the cuff. I did that to um, Bob Varsha, too. And he, he my joke, whatever it was, bounced off the side of his head. And he's looking at Brian. And he goes, you'll get used to him. <laughs> so, Biggie says uh, he is so right. Knowing the backstory, education, the simple sharing that pulls us all together. So awesome listening to him and genuine uh, joking in mind. Love it. And uh, sometimes, sometimes when we're doing things and the guys will give me a little grief for joking around, but then they'll tell me later on it helped them out. Because if you're, if you're in a position where uh, mother nature steps in or there's, uh, you know, some sort of a technical uh, difficulty, as they say, 
uh, you don't want to lose your you don't want to lose your marbles. You want to keep it nice and 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 is as easy going and moving forward as possible. Because if you start getting tensed up, then my lord, you just lose control of everything. Well, we were talking like before um, the open of the show is the hardest thing. If you can just get through mm-hmm. the first fifteen minutes to the commercial break, then it's flowing. Yeah. But that first part, you got to explain where you are, uh, what the purpose of the thing is, who's in the championship, and who's doing this. So it's all technical stuff that you have to rehearse, and everybody has their own little segment that they have to do. And it's just the hardest time. I mean, getting through that clean is, is, is tough. Do you have an embarrassing moment in broadcasting, one that really sticks out in your mind, something you can talk about that's not going to get us in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> there's, you know, you never know what's going to happen, right. that's for sure. Right. You know, and, uh, there's a page of, of Dorseyisms, um, which were all on live TV, where I either invented a word that didn't exist yes. or completely butchered... <laughs> something right you know uh and and so they made a full full list of these things uh we had one of our tech guys our, our statistician uh rick ratichak and when i'd say something off the cuff that was just not right at all he would write it down on his notepad <laughs> so then they put this thing together and they did like a deal with jib jab or i'm driving my motor home driving the short bus yeah and they they worked all these these miscues in into the deal um we had this one guy uh who was a pretty much novice in a porsche cayenne and he was we were at virginia at var and he uh made a mistake and had one of the biggest nastiest flips i mean that thing flipped and flipped and flipped and we had live audio he had he had the onboard camera and the audio stayed live the whole thing and so when it it finally ends up ending up on its wheels and he goes <laughs> he's crying <laughs> yeah he's making this weird noise he's wow. crying and it's like and i'm i, I mean i i just broke down laughing i thought it was like, the funniest noise we had to go back and edit. luckily you can edit some of that away right but, yeah there's there's stuff that needs editing was he hurt or was he no he's just freaked out yeah. you know yeah he was fine but uh it was a big ride. There was no doubt about that. He had hit this tree. He went out into the woods and flipped over the guardrail, went out into the woods, and then hit this tree that was behind the tree that the camera was looking at. So right. the, the camera's looking into the woods trying to follow this car that's gone off there, and the, the, all you see is this big oak tree. But that's why I said, like, now look at that tree behind the tree. I said, watch that tree behind the tree. <laughs> and they're like going, there's no tree behind a tree. I'm like, exactly. Yes, there is. <laughs> oh, you can't see it. Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. That's the other thing, uh, you know, talking about making mistakes. You know, you're looking at, at a broadcast booth for a race. You might have 16 monitors. You're looking at, you know, every corner individually, but then you're looking at the live feed. And the live feed is what you really need to be watching because you're talking to the people at home that are watching the television and that's what's being shown. But then you'll see out of the corner of your eye a big thing happen somewhere else and you'll respond to it. Right. But it's not on air. Yeah, I mean, it's not on the TV itself. And so you're like, 
so you're all of a sudden you go, oh man, big wreck, and then everybody goes, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they do it now, you know. And oh, there's a, you know, there's somebody spun out in turn three or turn two, and that's not where the action is, right? And and yeah, I can see where uh, the producer and or director probably throw a bit of a fit when that happens. Absolutely, because because if they didn't see it, and they probably wouldn't have, because they're looking at you know what what's been put out on the network. You know, and then you do that, you interject something with that kind of emotion in your voice, and then it's like, they don't know what the heck's going on. And you don't know if somebody's hurt. You know, that's, you got to be always conscious of the fact that when these things happen, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to embellish upon it it, unless you're sure Mm -hmm. everything's going to be good. Right. So, yeah, it's, but if you see it, it's hard not to get involved. I mean, that's the neatest thing about doing live TV, live live versus going to a studio. At the studio, you can fix anything, but when you're live live, whatever happens is is, is real. I mean, so when we would go to France to do Le Mans, the whole production crew, everybody would go to France, and that was cool because the emotion then is huge. But yeah. it's you can't not be emotional in those situations. It was interesting to watch the progress of Dale Jr. as a broadcaster. You know, it doesn't come easy, no. um, and, and particularly, you know, different personality types and so forth. He's a he's a quiet guy to his own. Yeah, you know, so for to push him out of that that shell and make him get you know involved more you could tell you could tell he had a lot to overcome yeah as far as being someone who was more of an introvert and and you know you'd see him as a racer and then if he won you'd see the excitement but you really never heard a whole lot out of him aside no. from that and you know there's interviews like that too I, there are certain drivers you know that if you're going to go down live down on pit lane and interview him he's going to be say nothing yeah he's just going to go Ooh. yes no <laughs> yeah and yes. so you just don't go there you know right. you, Find somebody. There's guys that you know are going to respond in a, in a, a big way, and then there's guys that you can't get anything out of them. I wish Robbie Gordon would have been would have done better in NASCAR because he was always very animated. It seemed like. Oh yeah, he was my teammate too. I got him his job at that Ford. As a matter of fact, yeah, uh, I can tell stories about that. That's uh, Rob, Robbie wasn't even old enough to rent a car, so he stole one. <laughs> Literally, down in Sebring, he jumped the curb with one. Yeah. And then, you know, had somebody else bring it back. But, uh, you know, he, he was a real character early on. Uh, when I did the test for him as a driver, he had never really driven uh, anything but an automatic off-road truck. You know, so driving a five-speed, non-synchronized crash box, he had to learn all that from scratch. I mean, he never drove one before. And he was incredibly fast, you know, brazen yeah. without question. Um not always to a good degree, but yeah. Uh, yeah, he he was he has got more energy than anybody. I mean, he is solid energy. Well, he races on so many different levels. Oh, he does. I mean, he's done everything. I mean, he when he was in Ford's pocket, if you will, you know, I got him to deal with Trans Am. He ran there. He ran in IMSA. He ran uh, in Ford's IndyCar program. And they didn't have a particularly good IndyCar at the time. Ford didn't. Um, they were still developing it, and he was. You know, outspoken, even on television, about how crappy the car was. Yeah. That didn't sit well, you know, with, with most of the people afforded and spending that kind of money. But, uh, you know, he, there, there's a part of that you, you like and there's a part of that you don't. You know, it just depends on what end you're on. <laughs> but, but he was uh, brazen. That's just that he was. 
And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> and if you could give uh, Jeff Burton some broadcasting tips, I'd appreciate that as well. <laughs> he's he's kind of hard to watch. He's hard to listen the to. The Burton brothers are that they are Ward and Jeff. Yeah. I was teammates with Jeff. Um, we both had we shared the same sponsor, but not the same car. He had a, he had the Raybestos Ford uh, NASCAR car, and I had the Raybestos Ford Mustang uh, Trans Am car. So we had to go do a lot of functions together. He's mm. he's he's a fun guy. We're going to step aside, take our final break of the program, our bottom of the hour break, and come back and talk more with Dorsey Schrader. And your phone calls are welcome. 573-633-5395. Just having fun on a Monday on The Daily Show here on Key Radio. This is Bill Munhausen with another Key Opinion. Public schools need to develop clear policies regarding advocacy in the classroom. School children are increasingly being exposed to the personal view of teachers, views that often violate the values and worldview of the families they serve. Let me describe what may have taken place in our public school and takes place at many schools. A teacher decided to display an LGBTQ banner in the classroom while also suggesting books describing the associated lifestyles. Some would say the teacher is merely affirming individual rights, but the teacher is also promoting sexual practices. It's impossible to separate the two. Suppose a heterosexual male teacher promoted his sexual preferences to other people's children, particularly young girls in his classroom. Suppose he recommended books describing the wisdom of gaining sexual experience by partnering with a mature adult. Would that type of advocacy be acceptable? LGBTQ is not the only form of advocacy taking place in schools. Educators have a natural tendency to weigh in on societal issues such as racism, income inequality, bullying, women's rights, and more. All of these highly charged subjects create opportunities for conflict between public school teachers and parents and also affect the quality of knowledge presented to students. Our schools must be committed to convey knowledge rather than indoctrination. Reality is that Americans are deeply divided politically, sociologically, and morally, and public education has to navigate the divide in responsible ways. Because public schools represent the families in a community, they must develop written policies that equitably limit the role of teachers in promoting and advocating beyond the school's curriculum. Public school teachers must not advocate one political party or one interpretation of history or one preferred sports team for that matter. They certainly shouldn't be promoting a particular sexual lifestyle, knowing that lifestyle might be contrary to strongly held moral convictions of community members. They are teaching other people's children and must respect the values that families teach their children. The place for their personal advocacy must be separate from their professional lives. So let's not make every individual teacher decide where to draw the line. The school board must establish a school-wide policy to enforce the same line for everyone. Key Radio wants to help our community by offering a platform for all groups and organizations to share their message. If you have a pre-recorded public service announcement talking about who you are and what you do, email it to kbsfree65 at gmail.com. 
Rotary clubs, veterans groups, animal shelters, fundraising organizations, and more are all welcome to send us their pre-recorded message. Key Radio reserves the right to deny or accept any PSAs received. Can your business benefit from free consulting help? If you are a business owner with a website and social media presence and would like more market share and audience reach, a student assistant might be perfect for you. The Missouri Small Business Development Center at State Fair Community College has partnered with the accredited Digital Market Class to offer one-on-one collaboration to benefit businesses and students at no cost to you. Students can help with digital marketing, web design, search engine optimization, advertising and marketing, social media, and more. Your only commitment is to collaborate with your student through recurring meetings and assignment discussions. It's a win for businesses and students. Spring semester is January 17 through May 14. If you want to know more, contact Kelly Asbury by phone at 660-596-7350. Start 2023 outright. Learn evidence-based health and wellness, conflict resolution, tools, and accomplish peace. Learn growth mindsets. Learn to take action and be accountable. Learn to grow from life's challenges. You'll hear six speakers, three virtual and three in person. You'll receive a Scrum Master eBook and Compass Purpose 2.0 book a gift certificate for complimentary coaching, peace fire and two fire training, be beverages and finger foods, all for $49. On January 19th from 1 to 4.30 at Encompass Purpose in Max Creek. To reserve your spot, please call 573-286-5625 or email at encompasspurpose at gmail.com. This is Happy Headlines. I'm David Beach, bringing you good news and heartwarming stories to help you through your day. It's kind of our catchphrase. And then there's stories like this. Sometimes it's just a simple story of how people step in to help. Elizabeth and Jake Landut said their wedding was like a fairy tale. And at the reception, as Elizabeth's father was giving a speech, there was a bit of an interruption. The guests were pointing out that the building next door to the reception had caught on fire. Everyone had to evacuate. Well, the wedding couple did, but they really had no idea where to go, so they decided to just walk away. They were on Mackinac Island, and Mackinac Island doesn't have cars, so they walked back to the church where they were first married and opted to pray for everyone's health and safety. They got what they were praying for. The building was saved, no one was hurt, and the reception the community stepped up. The chef at the venue took all 120 meals, which were only partially prepared, and told the staff to bring them to the restaurant next door. We cooked it, sauced it, and off down the street it went. They served the meal at a resort that had event space available. What they didn't have, another restaurant provided. A bellhop volunteered to bartend. A lady on the street carried a box of flowers, and in less than an hour, the article stated the bride was back to blushing. To have them pick up the reception out of the ashes in a very literal sense made the wedding better than we ever could have imagined and one that while we don't necessarily recommend it's a day and an experience that we will cherish forever jake said see it's amazing how people can come together even in this day and age when it seems like we're so torn apart maybe it's not as bad as you sometimes think 
that is what this podcast is all about. This is Happy Headlines. I'm David Beach. Thank you so much for listening. Stay happy, stay healthy, and find a way to make someone's day. This is your chance to get involved in community radio, Lake of the Ozarks, with 89.3, The Key. 938 right back here with our guest, Dorsey Schrader, talking about uh, any number of things. If you'd like to get a phone call in, talk to Dorsey. you got a question, you've got a comment, 573-633-5395. And I have to say it's been a, a great uh, great experience having you with us here today, and, and thank you so much for taking time. And uh, So you've been all over the country, but uh, eventually you find yourself coming back to the Lake of the Ozarks. What do you think of the lake these days? Well, you know, <laughs> that's a funny story because I spent 25 years down by Key West, and um, they were building the highway. I remember the very first time I came back, it, there were no names to roads back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was KK or it was whatever, you know. And so I'm coming down the highway, which is very strange, and I'm glad it's 70, 70 miles an hour now. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I, but I, when I got here, I didn't know what exit I lived off of. <laughs> I said, I know we got to cross the water on the upside down bridge. That's right. how old I am, you know. Uh, but uh, I don't know, you know. Nichols Road wasn't it, and, and you know, so I didn't know where I was at. I mean, it was completely a foreign experience coming back here to the lake, and then of course the the amount of building that's been done and the changes that's been made and it continue to change. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's quite a lot different. It's not not so down home anymore, but I wish it was. You know, because I, I we were talking I like, about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the way things were. Uh, better than the way they are now, but you can't stop change either. Uh, it's the same with cars. You know, I don't like the current race cars at all. I like the old cars a lot better, but you can't change the fact that, you know, technology has, has made them what they are. Seems like everything, as far as sports is concerned, uh, it's now about safety and making sure because we've seen the results. And a good case in point, I guess, uh, one of the most, uh, maybe more, uh, out there, uh, certainly visible uh, result is some of these guys that played professional football. Yeah, and the concussions that they sustain. And, and that's what's going on with NASCAR now yeah. with their new car is that they've made the car so strong that now all of the energy when you have a wreck is transferred all the way through, and nothing gives, and it gets to the driver, and all these guys are having the same concussion problem. Wow. And um, I, I actually went through that. I had three major wrecks in one year and was uh, had concussions each time. And, and, and it came down to the conversation that you might need to sit out for, and heal. You know, you think you're okay, but you're not. Mm. Not your brain. Your brain smashes inside of your skull. You go unconscious. You don't remember anything. Uh, and, and then you think you're okay because, you know, you're up and walking and talking. But then there are residual side effects to that that, that are long-living. Um, you know, and that's where Dale Earnhardt Jr. is. I mean, he, that's what—that's the conversation he had. Was if you do this again, and one of his dad's really good friends, Neil Bonnet, who I worked with in in broadcasting, died from that. They told him, you know, you need to get out of the car. Don't mm-hmm. do this again, because one more time, and uh, that damage to the same area of your spine, and and you'll probably be done. And he went out testing uh, one of Dale's cars and, and died that way. Now you were talking about some of the things that uh, you've had done. You know. Uh, 
physically. Yeah. Uh, is any of that a direct result from your racing days? And, and, and what do you feel now that you know is a direct result of, of being involved in a crash or, or being involved in racing? Both of my legs um, have had major damage done over the years. I just I, We were talking about that. I just was up in uh, Columbia two years ago, almost to today, and had my right ankle uh, cut off and replaced with titanium. So I've got a total ankle replacement, or TAR, they call it, mm-hmm. uh, pretty new surgery. Uh, and that went wonderfully. Um, I, I was to the point where I couldn't walk anymore, literally. with the, I couldn't take the pain. I was bone to bone on my ankle to a foot. And, uh, you know, I've done broken pretty much everything on the left side of my body. My left arm's been broken in 15 places. I've lost, you know, the leg. Uh, eye socket, jaw. Um, though, and you're still so handsome. <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle. But I used to be a girl. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, the legs for sure are um, on these cold days. Mm-hmm. They, they're they not particularly happy. Uh, both shoulders have been redone. Um, uh, those don't bother me as much as the, the leg the leg stuff. Um, that's a pretty typical injury, but the, the concussion part of things, you know, talking back with that, um, that, that's a serious deal. That, that, that's a step beyond replacing a bone here and there. Um, you know, I did have, each time you get knocked out, you get knocked out easier. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes less of a, less of a concussion to, to take you down, um, and and that's that's a big concern. And I think these guys in football, you know, are not realizing that the residual effect when they're when they retire, um, you know, that there's long lasting effect to, to that injury. There certainly is. There definitely is. So, what was concussion protocol like? Uh, let's say when you first started driving. Was None. It, uh, uh, they didn't even have one. I mean, I I literally I got concussed and drove the next day, and. Um, you know, smelling salts and then back in the car? Yeah, but pretty much, yeah, if you're back up and you just keep going. Um, nowadays, uh, and, and this is protocol after the football deal, actually, you know, you do a concussion test at the beginning of a season, and it's basically they'll give you pictures of different objects or different drawings, I should say, mm-hmm. and, and they'll have them in an order, and you get like a minute to look at it, and then... You have to, in your mind, go back and and put it back in the right order. I see. And then they'll test you again after uh, after you have a concussion or or a, a big wreck and see, you know, what your results were before, what versus what they are now. I wasn't good. <laughs> I was never good. I, I took that test like uh, just twice, I think, and I was really bad at that. <laughs> Well, to me, it would seem like, uh, you know, you, 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 you get injured and, uh, you know, depending on the quality of, 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 of care that you would uh, be treated to the highest level because they'd want you back behind the wheel of a vehicle. But I know in some instances, just like in any sport with, uh, with motorsports, 
uh, a lot of guys didn't want to have to deal with it. They, uh, I'm okay, I'm great, everything's right. fine. And, Just, and you know, get me back in there, coach. You, you never want to give up your ride in a race car because yeah. as soon as you cannot sit in that seat, somebody else is going to take it. Right. And uh, then you'll probably not get back in that seat again. I mean, I broke my uh, scapula, my left shoulder, um, in a race at St. Petersburg, Florida, and drove in my championship car the next week. All They can't do anything for shoulders. It's like when you break you know uh, so your ribs it, it hurts yeah yeah but they can't do anything but tape you up and then that's what i so i got i had to get you know poured in the car and lifted out of the car because i couldn't do it on my own mm-hmm. which is kind of stupid because if i'd wrecked i couldn't have got out i've been in that situation a couple of different times where i knew you know if the car got upside down and it got fire i was done you know it, it's there was no getting out on your own and um and so i i'd taped myself all up and bandaged myself all up and got in the car and ended up, you know, finishing third. But that's that's how crazy it is. You get so committed to racing or to football or to anything that you are not going to on your own stop. Mm-hmm. You're going to go. If you can, you're going, you know, and it, whether it's sensible or not, and, and it's not. And I've heard <laughs> And I've heard other drivers talk about the pain that they've endured oh, yeah. just to make sure that they could get behind the wheel of that vehicle. Uh, Once you're in to. there, you're so committed to the concentration level it takes that yeah. you really don't feel anything. doesn't mean that the bad things aren't happening to you while you're sure, doing it. Sure. You know? It's just you just numb yourself out of it. And, uh, you know, it's the same thing in football. I mean, guys get hurt. Every time you get hit hard, yeah. it hurts. Oh, yeah. You know, but you get back up and you go get ready to do it again. And the same thing here. I mean, it's um, it, it's part of the deal, but your commitment level is so high, and it's it's all you want. What was the lifestyle like? I mean, you, you, when you were when you were riding high, when you were in in that position where you said you were just doing really well, and 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 and, and what was it like to to have people there basically? I guess at your beck and call. It, it you know. You take it for granted, but at that point in my life when I was driving for Ford, I got everything for free. Mm-hmm. I got a car for free. I, I could go to any Ford dealership and just say, I want that car, mm-hmm. and they would have to give it to me. Or I could just order one from Ford and, and run it for a year. And so, you know, those type of things. Everywhere you go, your dinner's bought. Uh, you know, every, everything you do, everything's handed to you. You're, you're driving. You're making big money. Yeah. You know, spending big money, but you don't have to because everything's free. So you're just wasting big money. Um, you know, the, the lifestyle is a rock star. Yeah, there's no doubt. And it used to be more so like that. Uh, the downside of that is the longer you stay in that game. And this could have been we talked about Carl Edwards earlier on. This could have been part of what he saw coming too. You you get to where you can't go anywhere and you can't be alone. Uh, Everywhere you go, there's people that recognize who you are, and then, you know, you, you just, you end up having to be a recluse, and that's what everybody's doing now with motorhomes and stuff. They just go straight to the motorhome, stay in there. They can't come outside. As soon as they come outside, there's going to be 1,200 people that want autographs and all that. Get, there's a plus and there's a minus. The, the, the hardest thing, and you and I were talking about that before, too, is when that all crashes, which it will, at yeah. some point, all that's going to go away, and uh, and then that downer period is really hard to get through. When they've gotten their use out of you, 
Yeah. You know, it reminds me. Yeah, I mean, it's going to go away. Whether you get injured or you get too old or whether, uh, you know, sponsor goes away. There's so many things that can take you down. But once you're down out of that system, you know, then reality comes back and you don't know how to deal with it. Because you've, you know, you've... You've been milked for all you're worth. It's like a rock star that's not selling records anymore. Yeah. I mean, once it's done... You're on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, though, you've been able to kind of parlay your career into some other areas, broadcasting, and and it, 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 we talked a little bit about the restaurant business, but... Uh, yeah, I won't do that again. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark wants to know, he, he says, I'd uh, love to know his uh, favorite track and his thoughts about Mid-Ohio. Well, you know, Mid-Ohio, when I was coming up um, early on, was the premier racetrack in the United States. Uh, There was a guy named Jim Truman, uh, who was alive then. He died of cancer a a long time back now. Uh, He founded Red Roof Inns and became very wealthy. And he bought Mid-Ohio Racetrack and made it sort of like the first golf course type race car track. It was so beautiful. You actually did get you got charged ground fees if you went off in your race car and your tours grass up <laughs> or you know, if you hit the guardrail, you had to pay for the paint to fix it and all that. But it was, it was a fantastic track. Um, it's gone way, way, way downhill and the guys that own it now don't spend money on it. And it's unfortunately now lost all of its glory. Um, and that's, that's a shame because it's a good track. I mean, favorite tracks for me have always been old school, fast, dangerous tracks per se the one at uh here in lake of the ozarks fits that category mm-hmm. everybody's crying like a baby about that track it's so dangerous blah blah, blah. well the first time you went to road atlanta or the first time you went to most sport the first time you went to watkins Glen, any of those tracks were just the same they scared you to death and you looked out there and most sport was really dangerous you know and it's still running to today and we, we learned to drive it and get around it so you know it improves all of those things improve as they go forward mm-hmm. um this track out here is really really fast it gets your full attention you know um and it's going to tear some cars up but that that's nothing new i mean that's what happens you know it's um I like those tracks. You know, that's what I grew up with. And, you know, the Mid-America Raceways out in Wensville, Missouri, when it was still here, that's right. been years ago, was uh, 2.86 miles, a uh, 10-turn track. And it was very, very fast. And, and you ran down through this woods through turn two to turn three, and the trees were literally on the edge of the road. I mean, if you went off, you'd hit an oak tree, you, you know, and... So it didn't go off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that was, Made you a more attentive driver. Yeah, uh, that was it. I for mean, a number of reasons. You know, for years we went to street courses um, where they, they took the downtown street, which they do at Belle Isle in, in Detroit. Uh, of course, the, the longest going one is Long Beach Grand Prix. That's, that's been going on for years and years. But they lined the streets with concrete walls on either side. That's not... A, you know that's not a very smooth thing to hit either but it's it was kind of the same you what, know. Are, what are some of the tracks that you'd like to see come back well i'd love to have mid-america raceways back that was a fantastic track it was it was so cool um 
I don't know anybody that didn't like that. You know, all the guys that we talked about with Elliot Forbes Robinson, the guys that called in before about that, everybody ran that track mm-hmm. at some point in their careers, I think. Um, that's a neat track. There was some, uh, used to be in the Midwest, we had probably five or six tracks that we don't run on anymore. Mid-America Raceways, Lake Afton, Lake Garnett, uh, Ponca City, Oklahoma. Uh, all those tracks are gone. Uh, a couple out in Colorado that we used to run. We lost all of the road racing uh, in the Midwest. Des Moines Grand Prix was was a fantastic thing that Ruan uh, Company put that on until the flood. The big flood took that down. You know, I I was at every one of those races uh, that they ran. I think they ran twelve times. Um, I ran the first and last one, and I worked for ESPN with Dr. Jerry Punch all the way through every other one. I won both of them. There's an interesting uh, name. Yeah, Jerry Punch, great guy. You know, just really fun guy. And, uh, boy, we could tell you stories about that, too. We were uh, So we did the broadcast at Rouen Grand Prix in, in Des Moines from inside their stadium. And the stadium would would still be having events going on down in in the infield, mm-hmm. and we were in an air conditioning duct for that whole big thing. It's, so they set up a little office in there when the air conditioning would turn on, all our papers go. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know where they went, <laughs> but they weren't with us anymore. Yeah, it was it was a it was a pretty cool deal, and then to, you know that was kind of like a home track, and and I had a lot of fans in Des Moines area, the Iowa area, and and being able to win both times there, and it was the first one that was the hardest race in my life, the, as far as physically, the very first one, and luckily I was young and in really good shape. In in '89, it was 109 degrees Holy outside, yeah. and that race was about and a little over an hour long, and I mean, we were melting. I, I remember another good name you're going to like too is Chris Economac. He was mm-hmm. he was on right. pit lane. So yeah. Chris was in his seventies at least, if not eighties, and uh, they had all these nurses with um, coolers full of ice water and, and towels, and they're they're putting towels on old Chris there. But us in the car were just dying. I mean, it was horrible. I got burns on. I had second degree burns on my butt. On both legs, both hands, both my elbows from just touching in the car. It's before they uh, implemented the cooling. Yeah, no cool suit back yeah, then. No cooling oh. suits. Uh, it was horrible. <laughs> but I won anyway. If you uh, if you could talk to some of these up-and-coming drivers or potentially drivers or, or people that might be interested in the sport, what kind of advice would you give them? So different now. Um, you know, you have to come in with some sort of money whether it be your parents or your uh, sponsor, whatever. It's gotten so expensive that, you know, you have to come in. You have to be politically correct about everything. You couldn't do anything I used to do. Yeah. You know, (laughs) nothing. Kyle Larson found that out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you just can't imagine how easy in today's society it is to, you know, get under somebody's skin by not really doing anything. Right. You know, and that's that's the hard part of the joke part of being the broadcaster, too. You know, anything you say is going to offend somebody. So I said, hell with that. I'll get all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down big. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go down hard. Yeah. It's uh, it is tough now. I mean, it really is. It's it's gotten so political. You know, I wish there was a speed vision again or something that w- would start out g- grassroots mm-hmm. from the bottom and, and tell the story from a fun way like you and I are doing. Maybe you need to do that. Yeah, it needs to be done for sure. I mean, I, I, I can't even watch the stuff that's out there now. <laughs> it drives me crazy. 
Where do you see the sport in five, ten years? Uh, and, you know, what's interesting about motorsports in general, I always thought with all this climate change talk that they've got, that motorsports would be a victim right off the bat. Well, you know, it's, it's ironic. I'm very, very good friends with the CEO of Ford Motor Company, uh, Jim Farley, who is also a race car driver. And and he races, and he's allowed to race, which I find even more incredible that him, a man in that position is able to go out there and put it on the line, and sure. he does all the time. Um you know the the future with electric. Well, there's a lot. There's investing a lot of money in that. Is that going to be the end answer? No, won't. No, no way. Um, but you know that they're trying to change racing from that standpoint uh, to some degree. I'm working actually as as in the vintage racing industry, mm-hmm. and vintage is doing very very well. Imagine that. Extremely well. Yeah. People like it. You know, they like the noise, they like the smell, they like the cars. Everything about it is a positive. Um, and then you look at what's the trouble NASCAR is having with their new car and how they're trying to develop that, and it's not working as good as they would like. And the fan base is gone, or it's going. I mean, the diehards are still there, but nobody likes the direction they took uh, at this point. So, you know, I don't know. Um, it, it's It's a struggle because of the expense at this point i know this year coming 2023 it's uh the manufacturer um commitment level has gone way 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 up you know we're going to have cars this year running at le mans and definitely um here in the united states through imsa that the manufacturers only are involved because it's so expensive. So they're running the hybrid cars, which have both a gasoline engine or a diesel engine, uh, but a regular engine type. And then they have a motor, which is electric, Mm -hmm. running both front wheels. So that's what's been going on in Europe. And these cars are immensely uh, expensive. I mean, that last one I drove was, I think they were somewhere around $20 million dollars. You know, so you're no independent guy's going to do that. Right. Um, but you know, you've got two 500 horsepower motors on each of your front wheels, and then you got a thousand one at the back, and all that's got to be run through a computer. Um, and this is what I so I was driving for Audi, and only thing I really did in the car was steer. The rest of it was being done for me, which was okay, except for I thought. What if it breaks? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, Whoops. the computer's not going to die. It's going to be me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> There's still nothing better than sitting in turn four when they come around and smelling that racing fuel. Nothing oh, it's great. Yeah. Waking up to that's good. <laughs> Dorsey Schrader, thank you so much, man. It's been a great two hours. Enjoyed every bit of it. KB, buddy, anytime you need me, you let me know. Folks, we'll uh, be back in the ears tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Frosty Wildridge on the program in hour one. Marlena Hatmaker in hour number two. And you are always welcome to join us right here on 89.3 KEYK Osage Beach, Missouri. It is great to be alive and live at the lake. Have an outstanding.